Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 24 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. My name's Rod Murray, and on this episode, we'll be breaking down events from the 113th US Open at Merion, and we're going to be joined by a very special guest to do that in just a moment's time. It has, of course, been a couple of weeks since Justin Rose posted his win. It'll be interesting to get the insights of not only our mystery guests today, but our two regular analysts and co-hosts, Jeff Shackelford and Mike Clayton. Shack, it's a good morning to you over there in the States. Have you recovered from the trauma of the media centre being so far from the course at Merion? <laughs> no, it was actually not too bad. It, it worked very well. Um, uh, it was closer to the course than the uh, player locker room, that's for well, sure. <laughs> well, indeed, and we heard a little bit about that as well. It's also a welcome to player, architect and commentator Mike Clayton, who, like me, Clayton, I'm sure you were actually pretty close to the coffee machine and the fridge and everything else that's convenient at home for the whole week at Marion. None of the stress that poor Jeff had to deal with for us. No, no. So, well, that, that, this is a new, what do they call it, first world problem? Yeah. Isn't that the new kind of... <laughs> that's exactly right. The new saying. And it's right at the top of the list. Now, I mentioned a special guest, and this man might actually have something to complain about in regards to US Open stress because he had to endure four days of it. It's a very big welcome today to Australian touring professional Matthew Goggin. Mate, great to have you aboard, Matt. G'day, guys. Thanks for having me. No, good to uh, good of you to join us. I wanted to start with you, Matt, which is no great surprise. I've heard most of what the other two have had to say over the last couple of weeks, but I wanted to get your thoughts publicly. The chatter among the players the week of the event and the week after Merriam was generally pretty positive. I know Ricky Fowler was very generously worried about the fans if they ever took it back because it wasn't a great viewing course, but pretty positive for the most part amongst the players. What was the talk behind the scenes? Without offending any of your tour brethren, were people quite so complimentary about Merriam as a golf course for the US Open? Yeah, I think a lot of it, a lot of it comes down to how you play it, unfortunately. But for me, I, you know, just the chance to go there, I was very excited to get there. You know, I'm playing a year on the Web.com tour, so the chance to play in a major, you know, was a tremendous opportunity, especially at Marion. So a lot of the sort of hassles that can come along with, you know, the venue were uh, overlooked by me. But no, generally very positive, I would say. I think a lot of the guys loved the golf course and, you know, enjoyed the week. The criticism we made of it, I guess, here, and lots of other people did, of the of the 26 normal fairway acres at Merion, eight were lost before the US Open, and the golf course looked on television to be extremely narrow, and many of the angles that have made it a special place in many people's minds, place to play over the years, were lost. What was the experience on the ground, Matt? Did you find that, or was that a, an optical illusion that we sort of saw? No, that's pretty much a... Uh, that, that happens at every US Open, unfortunately. It seems to be the the powers that be like you to play from the wrong side of the hole. So, I mean, being in the rough is the best angle, but you have no shot. Being in the fairway, you know, gives you an opportunity to hit a second shot, but where they put a lot of the flags, you can't get at them. I mean, some days you can, you know, maybe one out of the four, they give you an opportunity from the fairway, you're in the right side of the hole, but I'd say generally three out of the four days, you're just playing away from the hole or playing at 20 or 30 feet. I mean, even with super soft greens, at Marion, it still didn't help that much to get the ball close. Well, there was a lot of talk. They put the pins on top of ridges and in spots where virtually impossible to get close for those first two days because it was soft. So that seems to have been the feeling. Matt, what was your gut feeling? I'm not sure whether you'd been to Marion before, but had the course not been so restricted by the US Open, would we have seen the sorts of scores people were foolishly talking about prior to the US Open possibly being shot? Oh, I doubt it. I really doubt it. I mean, if there was... You know, no rough at all, and the greens had a little bit of receptiveness, maybe. But those green complexes are very challenging. I mean, they were running at 13, which is just, you know, which is out of control, really. You couldn't get the ball. If you're above the hole, 
no chance. Pin high, maybe a little bit of a chance underneath, a little bit easier. But generally, it's very difficult to uh, to get the ball close. And if it was running hard and fast, I imagine it would have played tougher. Well, of course, yeah. Had it had it not rained, uh, one can only imagine what <laughs> what, yeah. what happened. But plus plus one on a on a less than seven thousand yard golf course with the best players in the world. Overall, that sort of aside, how was the experience, Matt? We heard some complaints, including from our own Jeff Shackelford, who was very nervous about the distance from the media centre to the golf course prior to tell. How did the logistics work? Did you think? I know it's probably you know you're at a US Open, as you said, so you sort of put up with it. But uh, is it workable? Do you think is Marion capable of hosting these sorts of big events based on what you saw? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, like the shuttle was, during the practice days, a bit of a hassle. But, you know, I was excited to be there, so you put up with it. Maybe some guys, maybe not so much. But overall, you were so um, so into the event. It wasn't until sort of after Friday, I played 30-odd holes or whatever on Friday, and then I get into a bus and I'm in traffic for 45 minutes and I just want to get out of there, you know? And those sort of things can, can be a hassle and it's difficult to get back and grab a meal compared to a regular event. But um, on the whole, it actually went a lot smoother than I thought it was because Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, there was, you know, we're in, you, you, sort of, you go out into the regular traffic and it was a bit of a nightmare. It'd take you 30 minutes to get across your practice round and all that sort of stuff and the, the, the putting green to warm up on over there which right next to the 14th tee was pretty diabolical in itself so I guess it was probably good to warm up on a green like that before you go and play but in general once the tournament started they had police escorts and you know you were whipping over there in five minutes and it wasn't a problem and you didn't even notice the shuttle it's, uh, I'm just, I was just thinking about that while you were talking about it, about a 45 commute home from work. It almost sounds like having a real job. That's not why you play <laughs> golf for a living, is it? <laughs> yeah, well, well, I was on the golf course from quarter past seven in the morning till half past four without stopping. Ouch. We, uh, we, were off the, uh, we started on the 11th, so that side was playing a lot slower for whatever reason. And then, uh, so, you know, some groups were getting 45 minutes after they finished. We had 15 minutes to get from the, from the 10th green all the way back through the other side of the golf course and then into somebody's house to sign our card and then we came out of the house and went straight over the first tee and went around again. So it was a pretty gruelling day. I'm pretty sure I saw something from Mike Weir talking about having um, having some sort of meal somewhere. It was in somebody's house and there was their kid watching television. It must have just <laughs> yeah, well, been bizarre. The family stayed in the house. So the USJ obviously commandeered a few properties that were right on the on the golf course and where the the driving range was on the other golf course there was this beautiful estate and there was a, we pitched a huge tent on their front yard we had their pool area there to set up with tables and chairs and inside was sort of the players only area and the registration and I believe Mike was down there watching TV and a dog comes down he's patting the dog and then some kid comes down and changes the TV channel on him and then it went on from there Dear, oh dear, I can only imagine. I remember Anthony Painter told me once years ago, Matt, that there was almost a riot at one of what was then the Nike Tour events because there was nobody doing shoe shine in the locker room that week and there were there were blokes threatening to leave the tournament there. This was just unbearable. I can only imagine what it must be like for the, the PGA Tour pros to be inside people's, people's houses. What does that do to the tournament and to the way you play, Matt, when you have the situation with the rain that there was? It's extraordinarily awkward. To try and keep up with scores and stuff as a spectator is almost impossible. What's it like to play? 30 holes, you said, in a day? That'd be almost almost unheard. It'd be a long time since you would have done that, I would have thought. Well, not really, because unfortunately, due to the genius of the of the scheduling of the tour, we seem to just follow the storm. <laughs> so we go to the States at the completely wrong time of year to go there, and 
we have to put up with delays, and this year's been particularly bad on both tours. So, you know, it's not a t- well, it's not unusual. Let's put it that way. So, I mean, it's obviously unusual playing that sort of condition and that sort of setup where mentally you're basically getting tortured for the whole day, but you know, and you're going to make mistakes and you get tired and you start making mental mistakes and it can be a big disadvantage. But generally, just playing 30 holes in a row seems to happen every other week now. Uh, yeah, well, of course, and they lost the Canadian Tour event completely last week, didn't they? They lost it totally to uh, to Weather Shack. I'm sure you've got some questions from Matt from sort of an architect and spectators point of view, and then I want to get Clates to ask some questions from a player's perspective about what it must have been like to play. So take it, take it away, Shack. Well, I, I watched Matt play um, a fair number of holes, and he's playing beautifully right now. But but I was struck the number of times that he placed himself in a in a perfect spot that that was in rough. Um, and I, I guess my I'm curious that Matt, what you think would would the scoring have been much lower if 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 these areas that say the right of the fourth hole um, or the left of the second hole. If these areas were in fairway as opposed to rough, would the scores really have been that much better? I mean, I guess, maybe. I mean, if you're given the proper angle, you can attack those holes a little bit more. Um, Four was particularly egregious because, you know, you can't see where you're laying up. So it becomes a blind layup. They, They obscured the actual where you feel like the fairway should be. So if you do hit it down the fairway, down the left-hand side, you're hitting over that trap. You can't see anything. And then they've moved the fairway away from where it it becomes a trick shot. You know, I'm trying to keep the, the layup in the fairway. So not only do you have the difficulty of trying to keep the tee shot in the fairway, you're then laying it up and invariably laying it up in the rough. And that par five becomes... They probably played over par for the week, even with the tee up. So a hole like that, maybe with a little bit of space and the ability to drive it down the right side to give yourself a better look, becomes a much easier hole. But... Well, what do you do? What do you do as a player when you you're aware of this and you you know it's not right? How do you? Um, because it's something that's always struck me is what's amazing about uh, Bobby Jones or Jack Nicklaus or Tiger Woods. Some of these very perceptive players that they're able to they recognize crap setup, but then put it aside and go out and play. <laughs> Somehow, uh, how, do, how, how do you deal with that? Yeah, well, I mean. The reality is, at the end of the week, the guys up around the top of the leaderboard have probably achieved that. I think, um, I think, I mean, that's what the U.S. Open sort of does. It frustrates you. There's always, you walk on the golf course and you play your practice rounds, and then all of a sudden you're looking at areas where pins can be, and they're all in the areas where you thought pins couldn't be. So immediately, you know, you're watching guys struggle and they're they're hitting nice shots in, they're putting it off the green, or you know, they're hitting good tee shots and finishing in diabolical positions, but, you know, it's going to happen to everybody. And at the end of the week, the top end of the leaderboard is just the guys who have dealt with it. They might not necessarily have played the best golf, but they've been able to work through the, the irritating parts without getting uh, getting too frustrated. So, I mean, uh, you just got to get into that mindset. And everyone probably goes in with that mindset, trying to achieve it, but actually doing it's another thing. And being on top of it, so invariably that's why I feel like the U.S. Open throws up. You know, it's not necessarily the same players who you think would play well in the U.S. Open play well each year. Mm. Matt, I'm just interested. Sorry, we, we and we we do it ourselves here on this show regularly. You know, the, the whining tour pro, and I, I suppose I kind of did a little bit with the idea of a 45 commute then food, but 
But as a player, um, when you complain about golf courses, it's very easy to be sort of singled out as just being a sook and a whinger and get on with it. You play golf for a living. But as a player, what do you think the spectators perhaps want to see? Is it good for the game, a good ad for the game, when somebody like yourself who can flat out play the game and, and guys who can really play the game are reduced to one over par by these kinds of... Um, but the, the way the, the golf course has been set up, I mean, does it, it doesn't really matter to you, does it, whether plus one or plus four wins, as long as you've had one less, uh, exactly. you win the tournament, don't you? So it doesn't matter to you whether you go to work and the golf course is difficult or not. But as an entertainer, is there some frustration there? Is that how you see yourself as an entertainer? Well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, when the gun goes off, you're just trying to get around the golf course and as less shots as possible. I, I mean, that's sort of <laughs> more a question for Fincham and those sorts of guys that run the numbers and you know, try and see what rates the best. Um, from my perspective, it's just, you know, you're just out there competing. I mean, I'd, you'd sooner try to be fair or but you want to have a little bit of, you know, strategy and some separation where the guys who are playing, it just doesn't get reduced into a putting competition. We see that quite a lot on some events where, you know, a poorly struck 9-iron to 10 feet is just as effective as a really well-struck 9-iron. And that sort of stuff is what frustrates me. But so at some of the bigger tournaments, the majors, you tend to not get away with the, you know, the poor striking or the poor, poorly thought out round. While on a regular tour event, you can definitely get away with those. But I imagine for the public, it's much more exciting to see good shots get rewarded and guys making birdies. Mm. And the other thing is, is guys in good good moods, in good spirits. Mm. <laughs> I mean, you watch that train wreck <laughs> the last day of the US Open. Everyone's just having a horrible time. Yeah. You know, it's it's like going to Disneyland in summer. Everyone's hating. <laughs> yeah. You know, you want to see people smiling and high fiving and pumping their fists as opposed to just being miserable at making a bogey. But that bogey won the tournament because everyone else is making double. It's you know, I, it's okay. Well, on that thought, Matt, one thing um, I, I, a lot of people who watched on television have told me since because I, I, in person it was very exciting. I found the final day, but people who watched on television found it really dull. Not and me. and uh, one of the things that they pointed out was it just felt like the players nobody could make a move, and and the setup was actually looked to me like it was a little more friendly on Sunday with some of the hole locations but the point I tried to make to people was when you when you even the best players in the world when you beat them up for 3 days you've 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 beaten them down so much that you've taken them out of their game you can't just flip a switch and ask them to just go right into birdie mode is that a fair assessment of kind of how oh, that works yeah for sure and it lingers i mean even the week after you're playing the first first few rounds and you've got to somehow change your mindset it's a very hard you know switch to flip as you said because because you're being so conservative and, you, and you're trying to be so smart i guess and um, not make any mistakes you know a par is a good score even on an easy hole you're just trying to grind away and it does become difficult to become very aggressive because even on a on an easy hole like 10 or even when they moved all those tees up on uh, on on seven and eight there where you could almost drive the green it's crazy mm. to attempt it and make a mistake because that, that'll cost you the tournament so, you know, it seems to me the punishment for the mistake doesn't, you know, doesn't outweigh the reward for the aggression. While in a regular tour event, you know, being aggressive isn't going to cause a bogey or a double. A lot of the times you can escape. While in a tournament like that, driving it in a thick rough 50 yards from the green where you can't get it on the green, and then when you miss the green, you can't get it up and down, becomes just far too much of a punishment. Mm. You end up 
wanting to neck yourself, don't you? Because you can't believe you've done something quite so silly. Matt, I wanted to ask you, aside from two weeks ago, when was the last time you hit driver on a par three? Uh, <laughs> okay, it was probably at Barn Bugle Dunes one day. Yeah. <laughs> what, you, you, hit it to, you hit it to a... Probably the seventh. Probably yeah, the seventh. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, it would have been a nice little... You hit it to a foot, I think, on Sunday, didn't you, and made a birdie I on did, the third. Yeah, oh. I didn't know what all the fuss was when I got in. Everyone was complaining <laughs> about it. I didn't really see what the big deal was. Uh, but quite seriously, on a Sunday of a US Open, to step on the third team, be confronted with that, and the Mickelson's quite famously had a go at Mike Davis who was standing behind the tee after he played it. He couldn't get it on the green. Of course, he wasn't carrying a driver. Yeah. Um, as a player, when you stand on the tee, I can't imagine driver on a par three really does enter your mind too often. It must have taken a moment to adjust to the notion, I'm going to need to hit driver here. Uh, not, not really. I mean, it's just another shot. You just look at the yardage and you just go, well, can I get forward to the front? Not really. There's a bit of a bowl at the back. You know, as long as it doesn't skip through, you're okay. I and mean, my fear was hitting it and landing and going long. But I guess it was a slightly into the breeze. You sort of hit a high, soft driver, and, you know, it all worked out great. And Brett Snedeker, Brent Snedeker hit it to about 15 feet as well. So our group didn't have too much trouble. I mean, I thought the 17th setup and definitely the 9th setup was far more egregious than anything they did all week on, mm. on three. Because three is quite a decent target. And if you miss the green... You know, where the flags were a lot of the time, especially on Sunday, it's a bit of a bowl back there, so you can, from anywhere short, you can chip a 20 feet past the hole and it would run back almost stiff. While nine was impossible every day, because the new tee were like set up on the wrong angle of the hole, so you're playing across the, the slope of the mm. green, they, they tucked the pin three to four days around the bunker on the left, and the wind was into off the left. I mean, it was impossible. And then the pin on 17 on Sunday was laughable. I mean, you either putted it off the green or hit it down and missed the green right and had that little 15-footer up the hill out of the, the first cut. But at least with three, you know, it was a big enough target to, to make a three or a four and move on. Well, the other two seemed to be far more egregious. At least you didn't hit one of the volunteers with your driver like Luke yeah. Ball did, which was just awful to see, and that must do awful things to a player. Matt, have you ever hit anybody, and how does that make you feel for the hole or two awesome. afterwards? Awesome <laughs> <laughs> just trying to find them a glove and move on. Yeah. <laughs> and just make sure you've got a good bounce, because if they give you a bad bounce, you'll probably, you know... Give them a sweaty glove. Be cuffing them out when you get down there. That's right. You get, you get a new glove if the, if the ball kicked well. You get a sweaty glove if it didn't. Yeah. Mate, so I'm sure you've got a million questions. We've been sort of hogging it. I'm, I'm interested to hear what you'd like to know about from Matt from the US Open. Oh, no. Um, just a comment that when you watch a regular tour event, they're often quite boring. But it struck me that Kingston Heath is kind of somewhere in between. It's actually a great golf course, but set up really well. So it's sort of in between the the regular dull sort of typical US tour test and a quality major venue, but set up really well. But um, I was thinking, you know, Zach Johnson seemed to get ripped by a lot of people for calling the setup manipulated, but isn't that exactly what it was? Oh, yeah, for sure. It was, I mean, the length now that they go to to set up these golf courses is amazing. I, mean, I was talking to Shaq about it. Um, when, I, when I played my practice round on Wednesday morning, we get to the I look down, I'm playing the third, I look across the fifth green, I reckon there was five USGA officials and four grounds crew yeah. uh, looking at where they're going to set the flags. And they all had spirit. There was three, you know, good yard long, metre long spirit levels that they're putting on all points of the green. And you can walk on that green and go, no, 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 no. Yes, you can put a pin there. But they've got some scientific method they're using to put it where the slope is not too much from a spirit level, I mean, it's, it's not that technical. 
And of course, it ended up putting it in a spot on one day where it was borderline. And they were running the green probably five feet faster than what it needed to be. But, you know, brushing rough up, some holes having it longer, some holes having it shorter. Um, on 18, late Wednesday night, they went out and, like, capped the rough down the left-hand side, which makes it worse because once you cut that, that long overseated rough and you're on the, the bottom three inches where it stands up, your ball sinks to the bottom, you can't get it out. But when it's six or seven inches and it lays down, the ball tends to sit on top of it. It actually gives you that option of, you know, hacking a five wood or something and getting it moving. Well, when they when they cap it, it they just chop the top off it. It just becomes horrible. So I mean, they do all sorts of things that are manipulative and seems to be, you know. You can't over blame the top. them. Though. You can't blame them. Matt, that 18th hole was playing so easy on the Sunday. They had to do something, <laughs> didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't understand, and I'm no, you know, I've read a few things, Clates has written why par is such an, in, it's the be-all and end-all to them, and even when it is par, it's not actually the par of the golf course, because nah. they'll get rid of all the par fives. That's right. Yeah. I mean, even in our qualifier, they were, they, we played four par fives as par fours, and I think played a par 68. Yeah. I mean, what's, that's in the qualifier, what's the point? Well, I mean, technically, Justin Rose shot seven under, didn't he? From what I could make, um, that, that, yeah. was, that seems yeah. to be the uh, the thing about it. Um, Shaq, I wanted to ask you about this, and 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 Matt's mentioned uh, the guys all out there with the spirit levels and stuff on the greens. Wasn't it interesting during the week when they released the the ad campaign about slow play, and then we had outrageously slow rounds of golf on a on a golf course that was just virtually impossible. Uh, to sort of move quickly on the the mixed messages from the USGA, they got in a bit of hot water for that that week, didn't they? Yeah, and it wasn't a real shock. I mean, I was the one that asked the second question at the press conference: Are you going to have your your time station <laughs> system in play here because it's been so successful at your other events? Are you going to implement it here? And every I've asked that question. I think this is the third or fourth year in a row I've asked it. Um, this time it was in the context though of a different press conference it was the pace of play with the initiative and the cute ad campaign and and this is kind of typical of golf they they want to um they they think about the ad campaign and they get excited and it, it was very well done there's no question they did a great job but then to turn on the television and see this stuff uh and of course television masks it i happen to follow a, a group on um um saturday uh, that Matt was playing in, and I and I won't name the the, the people he was playing with. I wouldn't want to embarrass Ian Poulter or, or Henrik Stenson, but um, <laughs> it was so unbelievably obnoxious watching how slow they were. And it, it wasn't just I don't I could deal with a guy that takes a minute and a half to play a shot. What I found so so just vile about these two watching them with Matt was that when it became their turn to hit. That was when they began to, began to prepare. They were in no way ready to play when it was their turn. And I understand sometimes you can't move around when somebody else is playing, but it was so apparent <laughs> that they they had done no preparation. And this went on for several holes, and I you know it just it just blew my mind. And and that's the kind of stuff where you have to have a system in place because it just people are going to take advantage of it until you have something that, that dishes out penalties. Yeah, I love Paul Goydos' line. They asked him about the slow play, and he said, well, that's all right. They solved it, didn't they? It was a 14-year-old kid from China that was the problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, who didn't know the system. No, that's right. Beautifully, beautifully done. Two things about that, Shaq. Excellent work. Never asked a question unless you know the answer. Well, you got to, you, you did that one well at the USGA, <laughs> and it'll be the same answer again yep. uh, next year. And the secondly, I don't think you can embarrass Ian Poulter, so there's no need to... Uh, <laughs> 
to uh, to worry about that. Back to more golf-like topics. Clayton, I was when I was listening to Matt earlier talking about the difference between majors and regular tour events, and he was talking about the poorly struck nine-iron to ten feet at the tour event, you know, is the same as, and that things turn into a putting comp. I guess I wanted to get your thoughts on what actually makes for entertaining golf to both watch and play, and it seems to me it's a combination of you've got to strike the ball well, but it can't be the only thing you do well. You've got to putt well, but it doesn't can't be the only thing you do well. But most importantly, at the when it's at its very best, you need to see players thinking and having to make decisions, and that you must do that well. That's almost the most important. What, what's your take on sort of what makes uh, entertaining golf in that way? Well, for me, it's interesting holes. I mean, I, I love watching golf at St Andrews. When you, you know, you're asking guys to decide for themselves where to go, I watched Seve play almost every hole in the 1978 PGA at Royal Melbourne, which was the perfect course for him. I mean, Augusta and Royal Melbourne were built for Seve, and watching a guy like that play Royal Melbourne was fascinating because he had the perfect game for it. But, um, yeah, for me, it's asking guys to think about what they're doing. And, and I detest this. I mean, Lang is a friend of um, Andrew Langford-Jones, who runs the tour down. He's a friend of Matt, Matt and mine. But he he's just has this throwaway line that people want to see birdies. And that's the last, I don't want to see giveaway birdies where you don't have to do anything to make them. You know, I don't love watching the US Open where no one birdies out of the hole. But, but to me, it's like you know, make birdies hard-earned, but you know, make them think about it, make them hit good shots and – but, but give them a chance. I mean, for me, the thing that was disappointing at the end of the US Open was that Mickelson and Day didn't have a chance to make a birdie because they missed the fairway. They had no chance. I mean, for me, you know, if the hole's 520 yards long, it doesn't need any rough. I mean, give him a free hit with the drive and let him hit the great two-iron shot. Of course, the argument against that is that, and it's a legitimate argument, I think, is that Dustin Rose is the one who nailed him down the fairway, so he should have been rewarded, but... For me, if you'd given Mickelson and, and, and Day a chance to hit the great shot to tie, that, that was more interesting than having him chop it out of the rough. Matt, as a, as a player, and I think it's probably partly an American phenomenon and it's, it's, sort of, it, it's born out of Ben Hogan and what just a machine-like ball striker he was, but, but all the talk about golf, and it's the mistake I suppose us amateurs make the most, think that it's all about how well you hit the ball. But as a player that, at the top level, there are, there are other elements that are almost more important, aren't they? Everybody who's in that U.S. Open field can hit it, that, can't they? I mean, you, you're known as a flusher and one of the better ball strikers around, but, um, you know, everyone in that field can hit it, can't they? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, talent's the entry fee. Everyone's got it. Um, it's not like anyone's really that much more talented when you, when you get down to the rank and file. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it obviously comes down to short game, putting, and... You know, strategy becomes you know a bit of an afterthought, really. The, the way a lot of the courses are played. So, Plates is right. I mean, it's nice to play on courses where they make you uncomfortable, and they don't make you uncomfortable because the punishment is severe for the wrong shot. They just make you uncomfortable because you're second guessing yourself all the time. Because you you stand up there and go, well, I'll just hit a four iron down the right side, and you're like, oh no, I should hit driver over the bunker. And then the next time you hit driver over the bunker, it's like, mm, I should hit four iron <laughs> down the right side. And that sort of thing can make a simple hole quite tricky and that can you know and that throws you for a loop a bit but generally you know we're just wailing away and you know you're trying to hit it you know across across water and if you make a mistake it goes in the water and then you, you worry about it next week but there's not a lot of thought going into what you're doing but it's How funny on st andrews he um his old caddy alistair squirrel i was asked i was playing a practice round with jeff at the last british open i knew squirrel caddied there a lot and i was trying to you know what do you do here what do you do squirrel and he's like well john daly's one here so just do whatever you want. 
Hey, saying so much by saying so little, I suppose. <laughs> it, what is that, a bit like, was it Faldo that asked Ben Hogan how to win the US Open? He said, just have less shots than everyone else. <laughs> it's not that hard. Not that hard. How would golf perhaps change, or how would it look different at the professional level, Matt, if there was more of that strategic thinking required? It seems to me that a player like Woods has got it all. He is capable of the strategy. And then you look at the way he's won on some of the golf courses he's won on it, you get the feeling he's got it, he gets it. But you also get the feeling that there's many on the US tour in particular who are pretty successful week in and week out, year in and year out, who probably wouldn't know one end of strategy from the other. Would it be a hey, different looking game? don't pick on my fellow on that. <laughs> well, I, tell, I tell you, it's, uh, they wouldn't have any problem with it. It's a total misconception that these guys are just um, can't, you know, can't think their way around the golf course. They're absolute idiots. The, uh, the reality is that you know, they can really play. I mean, they're, they're the best players in the world, but and if we played U.S. Open conditions every week, things would, you know, look different for a year or so. But then after a year or so, it would just look the same. You know, it'd be the same guys doing well. Maybe you'd have a bit of a shuffle further back. But, you know, those guys can execute under pressure. And that's what really being a competent professional golfer is all about. It's executing the basics under pressure. It's nothing, you know, Justin Rose hit a nice driver down the middle of the field, hit a nice fly on. Everyone's done that, you know thousands of times in their career that is doing under the greatest pressure which makes you the US Open champion so it's not whether he's you know thought out which dropping his driver and putting a three would whether that made any difference it doesn't make any difference when you execute and you know when guys are winning that's what they're doing especially standing three metres from the Hogan Plaque for five or six minutes while Luke Donald had a ruling sorted out. That must have just been brutal. How would you cope with that, Matt? That's punishing, isn't it? Standing on the 18th fairway with all of that history and everything and you've got to wait for four or five minutes before you can hit. That must have just been horrendous. Yeah, but he's in a, he's in a, he's in a state of mind where those sort of things aren't going to affect you. Mm. That's, that's what, when you're at the pointy end of the, the tournament and you're playing great, nothing bothers you. Yeah. If you're standing there and you've got to make par to make the cut and you've just come off a double, you're probably losing your mind. But when you've got a chance to win the US Open, it's like it didn't even happen. You wouldn't even have, made, have thought about it. It wouldn't concern you. Which, of course, was the excuse Monty had in 2006 with VJ's five-minute ruling. Yeah, well, that probably says a lot about why he didn't win. <laughs> Absolutely. It, and not to joke about it, but that, I suppose that's quite true, isn't it? I mean, every week we watch guys, the guys you're seeing on television are the guys playing well, so there's no surprise that you're seeing them yeah. hit good shots, is there, Matt? The guys you're not seeing on television oh, are the ones who are hitting it in the absolutely. water and hitting it and in the that, rough. That's the toughest thing when you're a kid and you're coming up. You believe you've got to play at this level that is just phenomenal. You know, you've got to do everything perfect. But all the golf you ever see on TV as a kid growing up is everyone playing their absolute best. Now, if you actually follow the tour around and watch them when they... You know, a really good player might win once, very rarely wins twice, probably makes two-thirds of their cuts, you know. So if you played them every, watched them every week, you'd probably be pretty disappointed, you know, and think, well, they're not that great. <laughs> because in reality, we're not, you know what I mean, as a whole. So, you know, the old Hogan line of just having one less than everybody else, it, it's not some, you know, state of perfection you've got to get to. But, uh yeah. Yeah, it's, well, it's it's such a mind game at the level you play at, isn't it? I mean, it's a mind game at the level I play at too, but a totally different mind game, which doesn't matter. But it's such a mind game, isn't it? Because, you you know, as you say, you grow up as a kid watching all this, but you can play as well. You know that you belong at those top levels. What lessons do you learn, Matt? I guess as a youngster, 
We probably thought of you as one who had an extraordinary talent but was perhaps a little hot-headed for your own good. Yeah. Fair assessment? White line fever, maybe. <laughs> Something like that? Yeah, I'd say I've been guilty of that for only 18 or 19 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, you know, and I guess a lot of that was um, yeah, expectations are always... Your own expectations are the toughest thing to deal with, and that's why you see guys reach a level and then drop off and it takes them a while to get to the next level and then they drop off again because for us humans, you know, not the superhuman type, it's uh, your expectations get raised. You have a great week, it's like, okay, now this is how I should play every week. The next week you don't achieve it, what's going on? You know, another week later now you're getting frustrated and uh, and that, that's that's pretty common amongst a lot of guys. You don't see a lot of guys just flatline it, you know, to their best golf and stay there. Well, yeah, and, and those that do tend to do pretty well. I don't know, you think of Bernhard Langer. Clayton Ogilvy suffered from a similar thing, didn't he, as a youngster? And he said quite publicly around that 2006 time when he won the US Open, there was a change in attitude which really changed his success rate. His game didn't really change that much. He hit it the same, he putted the same. He just dealt with everything better. Yeah, I think that was a big change for him. He learned a lot about how to... Well, he was a hot-tempered. Temp, apparently, I mean, I never saw it because I was away a bit, but he, um, he was apparently a pretty hot-tempered kid, and that might know better than me, but... I mean, lots of kids like that. Just, you know, they've got, I mean, Jeff always had a great desire and drive to play well. He just got annoyed when he didn't. I mean, and he's a kid. He's a 16-year-old kid. I mean, not all 16-year-old kids are mature and, you know, they, they do irrational things and get cranky. And But, yeah, and it's like, you know, the best players learn to deal with it. And, and the difficult thing about golf compared to other sports is you don't win very often. No, that's right. You know, you're spending a lot of time dealing with losing. It takes a special person to spend your whole time losing but convincing yourself that you're actually winning. You know what I mean? Yes. Well, in other sports, if you, you know, get through the first round or you win half your games, there's always that little validation of what you're doing is right because you had a win. Well, when you can turn pro, if you're not winning straight away, it's like everything I'm doing is wrong because these guys are winning. What are these guys doing differently? So you spend your whole time trying to change or improve, or you're getting frustrated with yourself because you're not getting the results you desired. But um, it's almost like when Tiger Woods turned pro, I remember when he did an interview with Curtis Strange, and he's like, you know, my goal is to win every week. And he was very condescending and saying, that's all right, buddy, you'll learn. (laughs) He used to say, that doesn't happen. You know, in the real world, you're going to get used to losing. And Tiger was just a total exception. But for everybody else, even the really good players, even a guy like Rory McIlroy has got to deal with playing rubbish and also being the best in the world. So mm. you can see that his frustrations creep as well. I suppose in some ways, Matt, you're lucky if you're playing rubbish. Nobody needs to know except you and your caddy and the blokes you're playing with. If Rory or Tiger are playing rubbish, the whole world knows about it because the cameras are still on them. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a fish bowl. Mm. But they get paid well to be in that fish bowl, so they can't yeah. complain. No, that's true. But, uh, <laughs> Rory doesn't look happy in his at the moment, I've got to say. I, I didn't think I'd ever see the day, Shaq, where we'd, we'd see Rory bend a club over his knee, but uh, we did see it on the 11th hole on Sunday at Marion, didn't we? Yeah, and it was another reminder that there really is a, it is an art form to break a club and look good doing it. But, <laughs> you know, that there's just certain people in the history of the game who really had a talent for it, like Tommy Bolt. And Sergio, I think, gets really yeah, yeah. not enough credit for his ability to, <laughs> to to pull it off looking looking good. But no, it was not pretty. Uh, you know, I don't... and. There's 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 just a vibe there. We've talked about it before. That's uh, something's off, and that's He's just the cruelty it. of golf. It doesn't take a whole lot. I know people just don't believe that that somebody as talented as him could have it 
could could have it uh, disappear a little bit, but it, it's just uh, it's the nature of the sport. It's brutal. Oh, time of life and all that. I mean, what is he? Twenty two, twenty three years old. Yeah. Multi million dollar contract. I mean, God, God forbid, there's no way I could have dealt with with uh, but, with any of that. The thing that's sad is I think it's one of those situations where if he probably just took uh, a, a month or uh, maybe two months uh, and and just just got away, didn't play, uh, cleared his mind and uh, came back fresh, he'd probably be fine. But the way our sport is now a year-round sport and he's got this massive contract and all these other obligations, that's not possible. And, that's right. and to me, that's one of the interesting things. Yeah, at the memorial this year, Jack Nicholas talked about how much, now I don't know, he may have been stretching it a little bit, how much he put the clubs away in the wintertime. I was a little skeptical. But he, he did talk about how in co- his college years especially, he just got away from the game for a while at times. And it, and it, uh, it, it it's, it's a good thing. Mm. T- tough to do. Nike aren't paying him $200 million to take a month off, Jeff. No. That's the problem, isn't it? Uh, you know, and that just—I'm sure they'd allow him to, but there's that pressure there now that he didn't have previously. That's a whole yep. other issue. But I- I- interesting stuff, Matt. I've always wanted to ask you about the uh, the final round at um, um, with with Tom Watson, two thousand Turnbury. You of course yep. played with with Tom Watson in that final. Tell us a little bit about. Well, A, going into the final round, you're obviously in with a chance. You're playing yep. in the last groups. How you sort of were feeling about that. And then to watch unfold what unfolded. Could you sort of take any notice? You're trying to win the Open. I guess you can't really be watching what everyone else is. But you, were you aware that something special was happening? Uh, not until my opportunity sort of disappeared. I guess with I had a putt for birdie to go maybe one in front on 14, I think. And I was, I'd actually hit a stretch where I was really starting to play well. I mean, I was super nervous when I got started. Um, you know, it wouldn't have mattered who I was playing with, obviously. There's a very strong vibe out there when you're playing with a guy that everyone in the world wants to win. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's right. You can and sense it, that. You know? And it's not you. <laughs> exactly. You, you, know, you can really sense that, and the energy is, is electric. Like uh, you, you get it in all sorts of sports, but to actually being in there and feeling that, it's like the energy is quite unbelievable. And uh, what was it? I think it was 11, the par three. Um, I hit it just outside Tom, maybe 20 feet. He had about an 18-footer. I left mine right in the short middle, gave him the perfect read. Then he made it, and the roar like shook me. I didn't know, like because I hadn't, I wasn't, I was so focused on what I was doing. And I turned around, and go, what is going on here? Like what just happened? Because he made it, and uh, it, yeah, yeah. And then towards the end, it wasn't until I got on 18 where I looked at my caddy. Brian, when he's just sort of standing off to the tee and sort of said, I can't believe this is about to happen. This is unbelievable. Because all day he's just another golfer and he's playing nicely. He got a bit squirrely in the middle and then he, you know, was closing really well. And then he's standing on that 18th tee at Turnbury and, you know, you've got that little trap on the left that you can't hit it into. If you hit it, I think Westwood actually got it on the green, which is a miracle shot. But if you hit it in there, it's a bogey. And Watson pulls out his Adams hybrid, which can go in the trap. And I'm just thinking, this is the dumbest thing you could possibly what's, what's he doing you know it's a five iron that can't get anywhere near the bunker and then a seven iron on the green and he gets in there and just rips this two iron just draw well hybrid rips it around the bunker down there in the perfect spot and like that just just crazy to even try to do that but unfortunately so, didn't work out as at that point when you're standing on the 18th team at that he's not just another golfer suddenly he's tom watson because you would have grown up with the tom watson legend and, and yeah. everything about it and suddenly were you like a kid again in some ways watching were you as nervous as the rest of us i was a bundle of nerves watching that last hole 
No, no, cause I, I, I was quite flat actually because I just had a great chance to win. Had hit a couple of nice shots and made two bogeys, and then uh, just made my third bogey in a row, or and then parred seventeen. So now I was out of it. I was, you know, you just coming, you sort of, you get out of your own bubble and the excitement of your day, and um, you're a bit flat. But then I think I was more observing it more from, I'm right there. So I was, I was watching him play and what he was doing, and he was starting to get irritated. He was starting to get frustrated. He was yelling at his caddy. Like the moment was getting really big. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, on, on 17, um, you know, his caddy was walking off while I was hitting a shot, and he just, you know, blew up at him. And, you know, and then on, on the 18th tee, the people were sort of starting to crowd in on the right, and his caddy had walked off 20 yards, was trying to get him to move off. He was starting to, you know, what are you doing? Get back here, you know, stand over there, get out of the way type thing. Because it it's not his normal caddy. I think it's a guy who caddies for him just when he's over in, in Scotland. So it was starting to, uh, which, which surprised me a little bit, but obviously it was a big, a, a big opportunity for him. But his mood definitely changed later in the day. I would think, Clates, that for a man at the age of 59, despite having won five Opens, to try and pull that off under the circumstances that Matt's describing would have been more difficult than the first one that he won in some ways. I mean, you could say he's been there, he's done it five times, he'd be familiar with it. It's been, been an awfully long time, Clates, hadn't it, uh, since that had happened? And that must have been a very surreal experience for him. Well, and you had to know it had to be the greatest win ever in golf at which is what it would have been. That was why sport. it was so disappointing. Yeah, sport, yeah. not just golf. You know, it's a, the great thing about golf is that, and it, it kind of goes back to the course a bit. There's a course that everyone can play. I mean, you know, Watson doesn't have a chance to win at Augusta or the US Open, but at 59, he can go and dominate, the, not dominate the Open, but win the Open says a lot about the golf course. But I always wonder, Matt, I mean, I've heard a few versions, maybe even yours, I can't remember, of the shot he hit into the green, because everyone sort of, I think he said that, as soon as I hit the shot, I knew I'd won the tournament. It would seem like it was bizarre what happened to it. Yeah, well, yeah, I don't know about that because from my angle, it was the the the, the green's kind of like a triangle, I guess. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I was coming in from a bit further back and a little bit shorter and left of him. So from my angle, there just there was no way he got the flag with a seven. I mean, it was howling down breeze. You had to land the ball ten yards short of the green to stop it. Okay. Yeah. So any, anything that carried that left left ridge, if you like, because it's quite a steep little up, and then it goes a little bit of a bowl, and then it flattens out and runs up to the back. Anything that carried that five or six paces on was never going to hold the green. Now, I mean, he's hitting a line, but I mean, it was blowing, you know, forty kilometers an hour probably. Okay. Which is what you didn't see on the TV, obviously. Mm-hmm. No. And and it was interesting because on the whole floor, it's a and he's back there with a pretty simple chip and he decides to putt it right so he puts it down you know taps it in easy easy four to take a one-shot lead now he hits it over the green and Turnbury was pretty lush then so you actually sort of had a, a first cut if you like of just the purest grass or a fringe so his ball goes over and down and now he's just sitting on a perfect lie back into the breeze little upslope easiest chip possible so I think he decided to putt it because he had such success on the on the hole before. So all these sort of things culminate for you to make, sure make a mistake. And I also say that during the day, the only thing he was sort of sketchy on was chipping. Yeah. So the guy had such a short, great short game, he didn't chip the ball inside 10 feet once. 
Well, you can see why he might have been nervous on the 18th, I suppose, Matt. Uh, you know, under all yeah. the circumstances, I mean, everything's perfect and all the rest of it. As it's you say, funny, talking about Augusta and, um, you know, we were going down the, I guess it was the 10th hole. No, the 8th hole, actually, the long par 4 back into the brute. He hits a nice tee shot. I smoke my tee shot. I ripped it, right? I'm feeling pretty good. And um, we start talking about, you know, how many tournaments you're going to play this year. And he's like, well, I'll probably play... I play Augusta, but that's just ceremonial for me. Um, I've got no chance there. I don't hit it far enough. And then as we finish the conversation, I'm standing next to my ball, and he's like four paces behind me. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, you don't hit it far enough, do you, Tom? Anyway, I think, I think he's actually... He's said a couple of times, hasn't he, Matt? It's not that he doesn't hit it far enough. He doesn't carry it far enough, is what he No, feels. it's amazing. Like, we were playing in a heavy cross breeze. Those first, um, first few holes at Turnbury just play up and down, and that wind comes off the coast there. And, you know, some of the holes, it's, it's hard to keep it in the field. You've got to hit so far into the, into the rubbish to keep it online. Well, he hits sort of this really nice topspin lob, if you like, where it just gets out and down. And for a guy who hits a little the wind hard off the right I couldn't hold the fairway and um, he hits a very similar shot to me but his ball just been dead straight all day it was incredibly impressive did you uh, did you learn anything from that day Matt was there anything to learn from sort of watching um... well yeah I mean what, like I learned every time I watch these guys that play really well when the pressure's on they become more conservative and they play even smarter and they almost have a let them lose mentality so they let other guys make mistakes. And it might be only just be a minute mistake, but say on, on 14, 15, and 16, he hit really safe iron shots. Now, all those flags you felt like you could get to, he didn't even try to. And I think Westwood and I made exactly the same mistake. We were both about on the same score. Maybe we were all tied for the lead playing the par three on 15. And the pin was tucked in front of a bunker, and there's a big soft front there. And was playing down and off the right, and I hit a perfect high seven. I landed it just on top. Nelly goes in, trickles into the back bunker, dead. Right? Watson hits his shot. He doesn't even try and land it on there. He actually played a little left of the flag and short, and just scurried it on top and had a thirty footer underneath. And that sort of, uh, you know, and that's a shot that he gained a shot on Westwood and I. All of a sudden, we're behind him because he played, you know, a conservative. And you see, you see Tiger do it all the time on the back nine of Augusta. You know, he's not, you know, he's not trying to hit flags and make eagles and do all that sort of stuff. He just makes his par when he's playing well, makes his par on 10 and 11, 12 hits it between the bunkers, 13 hits it middle of the green left, 15 hits it middle of the green or just over. He does all the, the simple stuff. And then you'll watch, you know, in the heyday, Ernie and Deval, they're trying to sneak it around the corner on 13 too far. They're trying to get it too close on 15 or they're trying to get it too close on 12 and you know, that, that's sort of the main takeaway I get watching those guys when they're winning. It, well, I suppose Nicholas said it many times, didn't he? You know, he, well, it said, it said about him, he just used to let other guys lose. He'd just be yeah. there and, and other guys would uh, would stumble. We've lost Clates, which is a, which is a, a real shame. Oh, here yeah, we go. Uh, the other thing is, it seems to me that when you're a kid, it's golf much more fun because you're allowed to play and try and do all these crazy shots, and, and you're more aggressive. And the hardest thing is to keep that, you know, like a Bubba Watson or, you know, a Seve, they, they remain kids their whole golfing careers. While for the rest of us, you get to a point where you, it's almost you become too smart for your own good, uh-huh. where it's like, okay, I've got to hit the fairway, I've got to hit it here. You know, 
what's my stock shot, what's my best way to get myself into that situation to then, you know, play on the green as opposed to playing with a little bit more fun and taking a little bit more on. Don't, don't you reckon that's changed about Tiger? Matt, over the years, he was one who always looked, when he was playing well and winning, he looked to be childlike in his joy. It wasn't like a grown man satisfied with his work. He was like a kid having fun. You could imagine, you know, playing short game games with him around the practice green and him winning. That's the sort of grin yeah. that he would have. And you don't, he's, he's back to sort of winning, but he seems to have lost that to me. And that looks really important. Not to get you in any trouble saying something no, bad about no, Tiger, yeah. but... Well, I, think, I think the way he plays is still the same. He just doesn't play at the same level. I, I, I think um, I think when he was playing his best, he was probably the most conservative player. I mean, like he was the guy who wouldn't hit the driver, even though he was the best driver in the field, you know, and stuff like that. It's just that he had an ability to hit shots that other guys couldn't hit, so it made it look like that he was trying something crazy. But to him, hitting a seven iron out of the right rough on six at Pebble up that hill where it looks like you're trying to lay it up and hit it on the green, well, no one else could do that. Mm. But to him, it's just a simple seven iron out of the rough. Yeah, Same thing with that bunker shot. Like, they saw that greatest, you know, one of the greatest shots, the bunker shot on the 18th Canadian Open there, where he hit six iron out of the bunker and carried all the water. But if you just think about that reality, he hit a six iron out of a fairway trap with no lip. Yeah. I mean, that's not a very impressive shot. I don't. Yeah, I agree with that one. I was never overly enamoured with the the one out of the. It just looked fabulous on TV, particularly when you had the above view, wasn't it? And it just keeps carrying over water, water, water. It looks really intimidating from that angle. But the and one at Pebble Beach, that's two hundred and thirty yards or whatever. Yeah well, yeah, well, but if you're hitting at two thirty with the six iron, then it is just a six iron, as you say. <laughs> that's my Whereas point. The, the one at Pebble was somewhat special. Now, that was cabbage that he hit that out of. That was extraordinary to get the ball airborne. Yeah. I thought from there. That's yeah. you know. That's yeah. so as you say, his spectacular is so spectacular you kind of forget that. In fact, he's actually quite conservative. Well, he's never won from behind a major. I mean, no. you, if you're super aggressive and can hit all the crazy shots, how can you... Like, he's a front-runner. It's unbelievable, as good as he is, that he's just a front-runner in majors. Mm. Yeah, and he's, yeah, well, he gets himself in front uh, so often. Clates, we finally got you back. My apologies for that. Oh, you, you, dis- you disappeared off the, uh, off the interweb for some time. Matt, we don't often get the chance to have a player of your sort of calibre. With your experience, you've played everywhere around the world. We don't often get the chance to pick your brain. This podcast is called State of the Game. What's your take on State of the Game? You're, of course, from Tassie, which is a small place, but with one of the world's most fabulous golf courses in Barmboogle Dunes. I think you and Clates are talking about perhaps doing another one down in that area. Overall, what's your take on the State of the Game? I suppose it's probably different in different parts of the world, isn't it? In America, it's different to here, and here it's different to Asia. Yeah, I mean, I think think the slow play, like what Jeff was talking about, is a real fundamental problem. And it's basically probably a fundamental flaw within the game itself and that you're given an unlimited time to accomplish 18 holes. While in other sports, you're not given unlimited time. And uh, that, that has to change. I don't know how you really change it, but it's, it's becoming so irritating playing on tour. I mean, I've played quite a few times now, unfortunately, from back and forth on the West Prom Tour. And, you know, you play with a lot of the kids. And I, I remember having this conversation with one of the other guys. I'm like, what did our generation do to make a 21-year-old kid be this slow, be this painful? And it's a real blight on the professional game. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, and then it trickles through. And now, from a social golf perspective, I think there's a, it takes too long. Public golf courses take forever. Um, and it's just no fun to play golf like that. 
And I think a lot of golf courses have been built or that were built through the sort of gluttonous times of the real estate boom were not very good golf courses. So, you know, what do you mean by not very good, Matt? Can you be a bit more? What, what do you mean by not very good? What, what offends you in a in a golf course? Is it length? Is it rough? Is it narrowness? Is it penal bunkers? Is it water? Is it well? We're all offended by fountains. I think we can take that as a yeah. given that if you've got any any respect for the game, you don't like a fountain. But when you say not good, what sorts of things do you see as not good? Well, not good to me is not interesting. Um, and like I play, the only social golf I can bear is when I go and play a really fun. <laughs> Or interesting golf course, you know. Like, I took a trip out to Bandon, loved it. If I go up to Barn Bugle, love it. If I go, I went down to Springside, which is a new resort um, down in the middle of Florida, which is a, a lot of fun, you know. I, I wouldn't play a single golf course in Florida by choice. And then to go down there and go to Streamsong and just have such a great time because the golf course gets you excited, you're excited to play. Like when I play a tour event, when I go to Riviera, I'm excited to play. When I go to Pebble, it's exciting to play. And it's exciting just because, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Mm. You know? Is that good and, for your and, game, Matt, as a pro? You mentioned there that you can lose the, the joy of golf by playing it professionally, and that's perfectly understandable. You know, the fun element goes out of it. As a as a touring pro, does it make sense to sometimes just pop down to Streamsong or Bandon or Barnboogle just to reacquaint yourself with the fun of the game? Yeah, for sure. It, it becomes not fun. Mm. You know, playing, playing for a living is, like, like it's an awesome job, but like, but like any job, when things aren't going well or, you know the weeks get long and the time away from your family and just the general travel wears you down. Mm-hmm. You know, it just becomes like any other job. Mm. But, I, cool. but, I, but there are a lot of things on tour which just turn you off the game. You know, the slow play and a lot of that sort of stuff, it's just, you know, well, in the, some of the way the courses are set up, it's just not, it's not enjoyable. It's not really well, the, fun golf. The sense of entitlement of some of your uh, tour brethren I would find pretty offensive, I would suspect myself. I won't ask you about that because that's not fair. What did you say once, Clates? It's not real work, but it is hard work. Is that how you describe professional no, golf? No, no it wasn't. Well, it's, it's, yeah, well, yeah, it's never. It's not really a real job in a sense, but you know, there's a lot of pressure and it's, you know, it's a lot of travel and there are things that are painful, but it's, it's not like going to the office or down a coal mine every day. But, no, yeah, no, I mean, yeah. I absolutely love doing it. Like, no. like, like, put it this way: it's the it's the Monday to Wednesday, which is painful. <laughs> as soon as the bell goes off, you know Thursday. The co- like, really, all you're interested in is competing. It doesn't really matter what you're competing on, where you're competing, how much you're competing for. It's just you're a competitor. That's that's why you're playing professional golf. I mean, if, you know, any sort of professional sport will say the same thing. Yeah. You just love to compete. It's just that all of a sudden it's the the grind of the Monday to Wednesday, like you're playing a practice round, you don't want to be out there. I mean, it's crazy, right? But uh, when I'm at Pebble Beach, I wander around, I've just got my head in the sky going, wow, this is awesome. What a great job. I love this. When's <laughs> the last time you... First three putt, I want to quit. <laughs> <laughs> When's the last time you paid a green fee, Matt? The stream song. You paid? Oh, yeah. Wow, yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah, stream song. But... No, Actually, just... I, you... I pay at Darn Bigel Jeans, too. And it's you pay down there? That's yeah. outrageous. Richard Sack no. can afford to host you. What's he doing charging you? That's an, that's an outrage. No, because I went down. I went down. I'm, I'm all for it. I think that, you know, these clubs are willing to, you know, hire the designers and go to the effort. You should pay. Oh, fantastic. Good on you. That's, uh, yeah. that's nice. I wanted to ask you about something else. I interviewed Jeff Ogilvie 
the year after he won the US Open in 2006, and he said one of the things that surprised him the most was that in 2005, he was a bloke that some people enjoyed talking to, and that was interesting. Uh, halfway through 2006, everything he said became gospel publicly because he won the US Open. Yeah. Uh, how do you deal with that public? You're obviously an articulate sort of a bloke. Um, how do I haven't won enough that? to become gospel. People <laughs> can disregard everything I say. So I don't have to worry about what I say. I think that's kind of the, the, the point that he was making. As soon as he won a major, suddenly everything he said became important. That, that part of professional golf, having to be careful about what you say. There's sponsors, there's commercial interests, there's businesses, there's a PGA Tour that doesn't mind finding people, not that you'd know because they don't like to tell anybody about it. Yeah. How, how do you like all that side of it? Because it seems to me, particularly in America, the land of free speech, there's not a whole lot of free speech necessarily goes on on the PGA Tour. Yeah, I mean, it's very guarded, and you have to be. I mean, unfortunately, when you are honest, um, you can open yourself up to, you know, a broadside or some criticism that, that you didn't see coming because you felt like your point of view was valid and was validated, while in a bubble of the PGA Tour, well, yeah, but in the real world, complaining about stuff or, you know, how much money we play for is not enough and stuff like that, I mean... Or how much money a tournament makes versus what they're actually putting into the event, like the PGA argument or the Ryder Cup. I mean, in the real world, it just becomes ridiculous, and you'll get, you know, half half for it. Well, so guys just learn to be, you know, at McElroy or Tiger Woods. I mean, Tiger Woods has got to the point where well, why would he say anything? I mean, why would he say anything interesting? There's no point to it. Well, he's, he's not he's not got a history. Well, in fact, I reread the piece that kind of destroyed his relationship with the press from back in 1997. It was Charles Pierce, I think it was. Was it Shaq? Uh, in G- uh, it was. In GQ, in G- yes. And I, yeah. I just reread that piece just the other day, and you can kind of oh. see partly why uh, Woods might have clammed up after that. He might have seen the writing on the wall for what was uh, what was to come. I mean, his offences weren't that egregious, but, um, yeah. Right, and and to... it's, it's, we're all poorer for it. Because, well, very much so. That's the problem. A lot of these guys are actually kind of interesting and fun, mm. Mm. but there's no way the you know the general public's going to see that. No, well, you can't afford it, can you? To be and some of these guys that aren't and... nice and fun are absolutely, you know, <laughs> you know what? Wonder... I, 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 I like treated like they're really nice guys. Uh, yeah, maybe one... maybe you'd find that out if they're honest. Yeah, <laughs> wonderful. Uh... Wonderful public images, but not particularly nice blokes. Let's not go there, Matt. You are going to talk yourself into some trouble. There are a few people actually listen to this show, so we'll we'll have to be a bit careful. Speaking about the transition, and uh, professional golf fascinates me in a lot of ways. One, because I could never possibly consider ever doing it, but it, it, it's such an unusual kind of world. You're just you're a kid from Tasmania, basically. What did you think the first time you got a hundred thousand dollar check? Hundred thousand. What about when I got my first eleven thousand dollars check? <laughs> okay, I Let's, thought I was the richest man in the world. Three I zeros. I, yeah, well, I, actually, I played. No, I went to the Asian Q school. Uh, my grandfather gave me five thousand dollars to start my career. It's like that's it. This will get you going, and that was enough to get me basically through two weeks in Asia. And I think I came back with about seven payments back then. You'd all get on the bus at the end of the tournament, and they'd you'd be an hour bus trip back to the golf course, and they'd dole out two hundred and fifty thousand dollars and send you on your way with a police escort. Um, so anyway, I came back with seven thousand US dollars, and I in cash, and I was hiding it in my socks on the plane because I thought everyone knew I had this money, and they were going to rob me. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so, I was, so I didn't know where to put it in my carry-on luggage. They'd I'd put it in there and put it up top. Anyway, my uncle. Um, and my dad, they're all, you know, 
moral free dancers, and they always talk about hiding the $100 in their sock. So I had this, you know, at the tote, you know, whenever they get one out of money, they're like, oh, we've got my $100 in the sock to remember. So for some reason, it's stuck in my mind. So I'm on the flight back from Indonesia with, you know, I've got my sh- platform shoes on like Usher with $100 bills stacked underneath my sock. <laughs> I thought I was the richest man in the world. And then I got back and played the, the Heineken. And I think I made the cut and made $14,000. And that was, you know, I was off then. I went and bought like a $900 stereo and just thought I was, you know, I thought I was it. <laughs> That's fantastic. We're talking about 98 here, 98, 99, around that area? It was uh, 97, yeah. 97. I won the amateur, actually it was 96. I won the amateur in 95 and then turned pro the next year. Yeah, 96 was a great year to turn pro. Um <laughs> certain other person turned pro that year too, Matt. It's uh, who's gone all right as well. I, I, I also recall something I've always wanted to ask you about. You finished second to Brad Hughes at the Australian Masters. You broke the tournament scoring record by, I think, three or five shots, and he covered you by two. What do you remember about that week? Uh, I remember him chipping in on 15 from long and left. And Clayton will remember the old 15th hole. Yeah, yeah. It was... He was almost under the tea tree down the left, and I hit I hit the flag with a seven iron, a back right flag. You know, oh wow, that's a good perfect. shot. Yeah, I mean you can't get it anywhere near it. So oh. I got a twenty footer. And I think I'm one behind at that point. No, and he chips it stiff. I miss, and then on seventeen, I think I'm now I'm two behind playing seventeen. He hit it in the bushes over the back of the green. I've got a, about a twenty footer for birdie, and he chipped it in. That's what I remember about that tournament. <laughs> What about? It's funny. Look, as a, what you become really good at remembering all the traps. <laughs> I couldn't tell you one good. I, I could remember that seven. But I couldn't tell you half the good shots I was hitting in my career. But I can tell you all the bad ones. <laughs> all the ones that, or all the ones that had bad consequences, I suppose. Exactly. There's bad shots that go all right, and then there's bad shots that that really cost you. That one, if I recall, was almost just the two of you. The two of you were just firing like. Two golfers rarely do. It was amazing to watch. As I said, you, you broke the tournament scoring record, which has stood for some 20 years. I think you, you broke it by three or five, and he was two in front of that. Is that the zone, Matt? Is that what they talk about when they have the zone? And, and can you recall that it was just the two of you? Were you was it a match play yeah, thing No, it was you? definitely just the two of us. It was definitely... It, it was almost right from the first tee. I don't remember anyone getting close to us during the day. Yeah, I mean... Call it whatever you want, but it's definitely um, you're definitely in a state of mind where you're not fearing anything. You're not even thinking about anything. I mean, and that's what it is. It's 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 no thought. It's just playing. It's just reacting. Every everything you every thought you have is a positive thought. Every 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 shot you play is aggressive to a target, even if it's a conservative target. So you know, and you have those moments, and they come and go. But that was definitely mm. that was pretty know. early in your career too, if I recall. What- yeah, two and three, that's the, you know, you expect it. I think I won, yeah. I think I finished second, third, first, and I was sort of off, off playing well, but when yeah, I was the, went off to Europe. Was that you won at Royal Canberra, I think, didn't you? The Tour Championship? Yeah, yeah, was and Clayton's yeah. going to dig it up and ruin it. Yeah, that's oh, right. Yeah. Oh, oh, boy. <laughs> oh, boy. Guy's going to well, cut well, the trees down. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. Air chainsaw. Yeah, I'm, ho- yeah. I'm hogging this, guys. Clates, Shaq, have you got some? I, I, I can't. Well, sorry, I can't help let, it. I Brad, excited. let's make them uncomfortable. We have to. Matt's yeah, been a nice it. guest, but what's it like uh, working with Mike Clayton as an architect? Um, and, and just act like his phone dropped off again. And come on, <laughs> okay. tell us what it's been like so far, and, and, give, and give us a little update on what's going on with on the your project. project. Yeah, from, the, from the start. Well, I'm about to find out because on uh, on Monday, Clates is coming down and. 
I'm one of his clients, so he has to listen to me so I can boss him around and tell him where all the holes have got to go. We're going to see more water, need more views. Good, good. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, um... yeah, no it's, it's funny. It's been... Uh, I, I always pick Clates right from the word go. Actually, it's, I talked about this a long time ago. When Clates first was on Barn Bugle Jeans, he was you know, pestering his hand. There's this piece of land up in Tassie. It's amazing. It's amazing. And I kept telling him, so the only place I'd do a golf course in Tasmania would be at Seven Mile Beach because it's just spectacular. Anyway, when he actually finally showed me the pictures of Barn Bugle Dunes, you're like, wow, that not only A, is it spectacular, B, there's actually golf holes there. So now I believe it because you hear these sorts of stories in a place like Tasmania all the time. There's always, you know, a development or something going on and they never come to fruition. So, yeah, I've been on the clates about Seven Mile Beach for a long time. So when we kind of made a push to actually do something about it, because for a long time there's always been, it's, it's one of those sort of areas where there's always been talk of something going on there. But when I used to play down at Royal Hobart down there, we used to go down there and look at it and think how spectacular it would be. And a Japanese group was going to do a golf course and then a, a Melbourne group God, was going to do happen. a golf course. And they all sort of come and go. But then we made, or I did, about three and a half years ago, decided to go, let's see why nothing happened down there. And we did a lot of research into, you know, what the reasons why things didn't work. And we sort of worked the in and around all that and was trying to be as transparent as possible with local government because it's on Crown land to maybe get this going. And now three and a half years later, it looks like it's a real possibility that we'll get going. And we bought Clates in really early just because, you know, known Clates for a long time and really trust his, you know, his eye and, and the work he's done. So it was a pretty easy fit for me. And he was cheap before he brought Ogilvy on board, wasn't he? And now it's yeah. to a bomb. Oh, now, it's a, now it's even cheaper. No, it's <laughs> no, this, this project, Clates, will change your life. That's it'll right. Yeah, life. The, the, the Greg Ramsey speech, I'll make you guys famous. Um, exactly. So this, that's why we're not going to pay you, because you'll get more money <laughs> that's right. the next exactly. project. Because everyone will think, Michael right. Clayton, Ogilvy Clayton, the greatest uh, architectural team in the world. Ask uh, not what Matt Goggin can do for you, but what you can do for Matt Goggin. Clates, you're about yeah. to tell us something. <laughs> no, no, well, it's, um, it's a tremendous piece of land. It's, I mean, there have been lots of great bits of land that golf courses have been put on in the last 20 years, Prizehead and Bandon and um, Sand Hills in Nebraska and Cabo Links and Gil Hans's course at Castle Stewart. So, so the great thing about golf in the last, well, since Sand Hills, is that people have gone to faraway places that weren't, on the surface, great business propositions and built great golf. And it's, mm. you know, in the most part, it's worked. I mean, not all of them have worked, but in the most part, people have made the effort to go there. And Bamboogle was really the, the, the one that everyone mm. thought was crazy. I mean, only at the start, I think there were only three people who thought I could work. And one was Tom Doak, and one was Mark Kaiser, and I was the other one. And we convinced Richard to do it, but every single other person thought he was crazy. And of course, now they look back and think, "Wow, what a great business!" Well, it's a good business, but but at some point, someone had to take a punt on it. But to me, this thing's five minutes from Hobart Airport. So when you're saying you're building a course five minutes from an airport, people have connotations of not very good land, but it's incredible land down in Hobart. So just just on that, Clates, and look, it is interesting, and, and those, and I think we've discussed this before, that this kind of almost a second golden age in some ways, where land close to cities is so expensive, you just couldn't possibly consider buying it and building yeah. golf courses, unless you're on Long Island and you can be, build Sabonic where they're playing the US Women's Open this week, but there's less and less of that. It's almost bred this sort of new kind of era, and, and the truth is, Richard Sattler is not making his millions out of Barn Boogle Dunes, is he? He's, it's a business that takes care of itself and returns some profit, 
But yeah. it's not a business that's going to make him as much as he makes in other endeavours. He's, he's wealthy well aside from Barn Bugle Dunes, isn't it? Not because of Barn Bugle Dunes. Yeah, so, he, yeah he, he, he could well afford to do it and he could probably afford to, you know, for it to lose a little money. And if it, if no one ever turned up and he spent his five or six million dollars, it wasn't going to, it would hurt him, but it wasn't going to bankrupt him by, by, by any means. But he, he, he really did it for the right reason. He didn't care about making a lot of money out of it. He, he just said, I want to see if I can do this. I want to see if it can work. I can afford to do it. If it makes a profit, great. And and and, it, and for me, it was never going to lose money. It, it was such no. a great place, and it is such a great place. That's you know, it's never going to lose money, and, and it makes a nice profit. And crazily, he's the he's now the biggest employer in northeast Tasmania, which is the you know the the big driver of Seven Mile Beaches. That the government there knows that golf can be a great tourism driver and a great employer. And in a state, Matt can tell you the economic state of Tasmania. It's a you know, by every measure, it's the, at, at the bottom in Australia. But it's such a beautiful place that it needs stuff like this, I think. It, it yeah. should be Australia's Queenstown, shouldn't it? Matt, of course, as a professional golfer, these are all the sorts of issues you don't generally deal with day-to-day. And Tassie, in particular, is extremely sensitive about anything environmental. And they've kind of tried to make themselves an environmental destination in the last two decades, it seems, from the outside, that the beauty of Tasmania, quite rightly, is what they're trying to sell. How are you coping with the frustrating nonsense that must be dealing with bureaucracy on a project like this? No, it's like having to play 30 holes in a US. You've just got to mentally deal with it. No, it's, it's, it's interesting, actually. I'm learning a lot, and a lot of, a lot of it's on the fly, just about, you know, just how government works and and just how, you know, planning schemes and, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of complexity in something you feel like should be simple. But, well, but, but that's the way, you know, things work more to protect, you know, to protect these assets around the state. Because if somebody did go in there and, and, and did it a bit on the fly and, and, and sold a massive lie, well, it, it wouldn't be good for the state. It would be terrible for the state. And that's why, you know, we made a tremendous effort to be as transparent as possible. I mean, they've known from day one exactly what we want to achieve down there and how we think it, you know, it could be spectacular for the public and opening that sort of an area up to the public. Because at the moment, you've got the beach which you can get onto, but the area internal, you can't, you've got to hop the fence and you can't really get down there. And it's very pretty and it, it's got a, a really nice vibe to it and it's perfect for golf. But the site's also big enough to, you know, integrate with a lot of other a lot of other stuff with, you know, with public uses. So we sort of feel like we're doing something that's not only going to be a fantastic golf course and be a huge employer for the state, but it's also going to open up the area to public access so they can enjoy it as well and be a great place to live. But it's been an interesting process, yeah. And, you know, all in all, like it, we've been at it for three and a half years. My, uh, Mike Cora and I, the guy who runs my foundation down here, it's sort of our idea and we sort of got going on it, but... I guess for a lot of other people that come in a bit late, things probably seem to be moving pretty quickly. But you know, we're we're hoping at some point we'll be able to get the the dozers down there and start shuffling a bit of sand around. I was just about to ask, uh, what is, I mean, I know the outlook is optimistic because you've been talking about it, and there's a website now, so you've been saying yeah. some things public. Um, have you got any sort of idea? I mean, you obviously haven't got the go ahead as yet. No, to be we're, able we're to working do it. through. We'll get where our we've dumped a whole heap of documents. Um, to local government 
and now they've got to decide whether, you know, our proposal is uh, yes, no, or alter this, and that's just what we're going through at the moment. And then, then it goes into a planning commission, which is sort of an, an independent body that assess, you know, rezoning of areas. So, but under the current planning, um, it, golf would work down there. Passive recreation is okay. It's just some of the other stuff we want to put down there to make it um, an integrated development where you know somewhere you could live, somewhere where you could, you know, go go out for dinner, stay at the hotel, play golf. All those sorts of things require some uh, planning amendments, and that's stuff that you know requires a lot more. Uh, is a little bit more delicate. Well, yeah, on, on the right. whole, hopefully before the end of the year, or you know, before, sometime before the end of the year, we'll be we'll know exactly what sort of approval we get, and um, then we'll go from there. And hopefully next year we'll be great. We'll have a job. Yeah, be nice. It would be good. With what we're paying him, Matt, that would be very good. <laughs> um, Shaq, it's important to get this stuff rising. And I know that did you you visited Bamboo when you were down here? Did you not, Shaq? I did. And is it, to me, that one of the beauties of Barmboogle is the simplicity of everything about it, including the buildings. It's why it sits so beautifully in its landscape. It's important to get something like this correct, isn't it? The worst possible result would be to have a monstrosity sitting on the beach there at Barmboogle as a clubhouse slash hotel. So they've got a real responsibility, Matt and Mike Clayton, don't they, to, to get this development right so that it actually works in its landscape. Well, and that's where coming, uh, or spending a lot of time on site is just so huge because you start to think through the whole, not just the golf holes, but the experience and uh, places you'll you'll want to you know uh, hang out mid round and uh, where you'd put up a little snack uh, table and um, things, the, all the little stuff that makes the great experiences in golf uh, so so special. That just hand comes cream, from kind hand of hand cream in the in the bathroom shack. That's hand cream in the abs- bathroom. Absolutely, you've got to <laughs> you've got to freshen up. And that you Sunscreen, know the thing. Yeah. It's admit you, you Aussies just can't let that go. You know, I was at an American <laughs> club recently, by the way. They had more crap on, than than probably any women's restroom on the uh, on the counters, and I and it was a good. Oh, it was Pine Valley. You know, mis- masculine place like Pine Valley. They had hand moisturizer. They anyway. Um, I'm with you. It's dry down here. It's dry. Down exactly. Here. No, the no thing good. that the thing that the one thing that Barnboogle is missing to me, and we talked about it uh, when when I was there with Clates. Uh, and Sandhills kind of misses it too, and we we built one at at the Prairie Club, and I I just think that these kinds of destination golf places, you've got to have uh, some sort of pitch and putt, yeah, uh, par three mm-hmm. course or a yep. cool Himalayas putting course, yep. so that you're not you see you just have some other little option at yep. the end of the day to kind of uh, wind down. It's a little lighter and shorter and smaller uh, golf yeah. experience. So I hope you guys have the space or something like that. That's planned. Actually, yeah. My idea was to have a warm-up course because, like, when I warm up, I hit a few putts mm. and go sandwich nine iron, seven iron, five iron, three iron driver. Huh. Instead of having the range, why don't you just go and play a little course that is those sequence of shots, and then go to the first tee? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Brilliant. You're, you're blowing my mind. That's an outside the box thinking from a US PGA <laughs> Tour player. What's happened here? But yeah. hang on, so when did, when did you get turned on to the hand cream, Matt? I find this intriguing because that's, a, that's almost a betrayal, my friend. You are still oh. Australian. Oh, well, it's just, you just can't have rough calluses. And, you know, you've got to, you've got to have oh, a soft dear. touch Thank you. Green. Thank you. Somebody with some class yeah, here. Jeez. Clates, are you a hand cream guy? I'm not, but I'm, I want to get away from that. But okay, it, fair enough. We're, 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 we're essentially building a new course at a place called Point Lonsdale. 
and we're, th- we're thinking about the clubhouse. We took, or, or I took a, a couple of the guys who are involved down there to look at clubhouses in the Yarra Valley, north of Melbourne. And the places we went to, or the places I thought that would make a great clubhouse, were not golf courses, but wineries. And mm. a yeah. friend of mine was. Well, what do you? A, a, the one place we went to to show them what not to do was a golf course. Here's not what to do. <laughs> Yeah, and then we went to a winery, and a friend of mine's got a beautiful wedding reception place up there. Here's what to do. And, I don't and think you even have a clubhouse, do you? Why have a clubhouse? Well, I, I'm have, kinda... have, a, have a nice hotel and a restaurant, and then have somewhere where you can sell your green seeds in a retail yeah. shop. Yeah, yeah. yeah although I have clubhouse. to say that the 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 man cave uh, room or whatever you want to call it at Barn Bugle, uh, where you can bet on the horses and watch sports, and yeah. uh, it, it, that that to me is pretty neat. So you got to have some place after the round to to have a drink and relax. But you're right. I mean, what, what do you need all these massive uh, banquet yeah. rooms? I, I've got a quick question for for you guys. Hey. Do you think the way forward is more restoring the great golf courses back to what they should be, and kind of what they've done at Pinehurst, as opposed to because uh, you know the real estate crash and that sort of stuff has really just crippled any new development in the biggest economy in the world. Do you see them going back and maybe returning the golden age to the golden age? Jack. Well, I don't know of a course in the, that's done a restoration that's unhappy yet. I've yet have yet to hear of one. I don't know if you have Clates, but uh, no. I mean there've been. I'm sure there've been some where their controversial things happened, but. Places that have done a good quality restoration and really tried to get back to the playing values of the uh, the old course, I've yet to hear of one that uh, isn't uh, thrilled with what they've done. Well, the only place I saw in America a before and after was LA Country Club, and it was to me staggering the difference. I mean, you you and I, in fact, saw them together, Jeff, the, the before and the after. And the difference in that golf course, which is a famous golf course in America that everyone thought was great, you know, the difference from 2007 to 2012 was, or 11 was staggering. I mean, you can, it's amazing you can improve a golf course that much. I, what about yeah, taking just, golf courses that aren't that uh, that are okay, that are on nice pieces of land, and just blowing them up and starting again? <laughs> well, thankfully, <laughs> that's we you don't want to have be a co-host, Matt. You're really <laughs> yeah. good at this. <laughs> Well, the good news is that that we don't have a lot of money right now to do that uh, because generally when we, at least in the United States, when people do that, they just go over the top. They don't know how to do a a gentle uh, renovation that just just breathes some life into the course. They feel like they have to uh, make it sort of bombastic. Hmm. Do you think the TPC, you know, the tour has sort of a bit of a responsibility there? I mean, the golf courses they seem to build, the budgets are just uh, are amazing. When you're spending yeah. twenty or thirty million dollars to produce a golf course to host a tournament, just blows my mind. Yeah, it is. Uh, the tour has done a lot of uh, uh, damage, uh, but I'd also say for all the bad things, they have done a, a few decent projects uh, or gone to some courses, or they're trying to go to some courses uh, that that are are better. I think they learned their lesson. Uh, you know, the Olympic course is a great example. The tour, a lot of people don't know, is very involved in consulting on that. And they were the ones that pushed very hard for for somebody like Gill or, or probably the other finalists uh, that, that had a good chance were the people who were along the same lines of thinking. So I think they learned their lesson. I hope they have. Yeah. Well, important for the game, isn't it, Matt? Because it is the public showcase. Uh, you, you know, you if you're not into golf, ever- that's all you see. 
Do you think you'd ever have a, a situation where a US Open venue... Like, wouldn't it be great to see how the tour would, or a PGA setup would be at Marion or at Oakmont? Yeah, Having a regular much better. event and see what they'd do? Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I, 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 I'm sure they would have done better. I mean, I even talked to a few of the rules officials out there, and they were... They were a little surprised at, at uh, some of the things they saw. I mean, just the par threes, like you talked about earlier in the show. This uh, uh, Marion has such amazing par threes, and the, and the ninth hole it was just butchered for the week. It just was yeah. awful from the left tee. And I remember on Friday afternoon, Mickelson hit a, a very nice shot, beautiful shot. It was about 20 feet from the hole, and I was listening on the little radio cast, and the guy said, well, that's the closest anybody's been all day. And I thought, oh, boy, that's not good. If that's the closest shot we've seen yeah. all day, that's somebody's gotten a little carried away here. And uh, unfortunately, the uh, technical glitches got the better of us there. Just as I was saying our goodbyes, a bit of static interfering with the recording. But we didn't miss anything. As I said, uh, just a huge thank you to Matt Goggin for taking the time to chat to us. I thought he was fantastic getting an insight that not a lot of people can give from the very top echelons of the game. So we do thank you for that. Also, thank you to Mike Clayton and Jeff Shackelford, as always. And I hope you enjoyed as much as I did that episode of State of the Game. We'll be back to do it all again in the next couple of weeks here on State of the Game. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.